since Ryan Miller and for the past 15 years have helped hundreds of people to raise millions of dollars for their funds and for their startups. If you're serious about raising money, launching your business, or taking your life to the next level, this show will give you the answers so that you too can enjoy your pursuit of making billions. Let's get into it. When you're in pursuit of making billions, there will come a time that you will need to demonstrate exceptional leadership abilities. So on this episode of Making Billions, I have my dear friend and M&A expert, John Prothrow, walking us through leadership development and how it affects your profits. So the question is, how do you develop yourself into a leader that people will naturally follow? All that and more coming right now. Here we go. Hey, welcome to another episode of Making Billions. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today I have my dear friend, John Prothrow. John is an M&A expert and the CEO at his latest acquired company, Foot Solutions. He has spent nearly 15 years specializing in middle market M&A turnarounds. So what this means is John is a guy you want to listen to if you are someone that's looking to level up in your leadership, turnarounds, or M&A. So John, welcome to the show, man. Hey, really glad to be here. A big fan. Big fan. I love how you make sure each one of your speakers adds value. It's, it's really nice to listen to the show and nice to be on. I appreciate it. That's right. I'm, I'm uh, absolutely ruthless. I pick on every one of you guys. So no, in all fairness, thank you for that. That's very kind of you. We're certainly honored to have you and truly an honor to have someone with your background and your experience. You know, before we get into all of that stuff, and you're going to want to hang in there in the end when John opens up about some of his own cheat codes that he's done over his long, extensive career in M&A turnarounds and leadership. But before we get into all that, maybe you can help me understand, like, where did this begin for you? Uh, so I started my career uh, having studied organizational communication and got a, uh, got a job doing post-merger integration planning um, with, a, with a large company. And then I kind of got interested more on being sort of in the middle as an M&A advisor, worked uh, for about 10 years doing lower middle market transactions uh, for a small boutique M&A advisory firm, first in California, then uh, in China. Uh, and then I moved back to Georgia when the boss wanted me to open an office over here. Spent uh, a few years actually running one of our customers, a company that was acquisitive. That I'd gotten involved with on the board level and gotten very close to, and they asked me to run their business for a while. So I did that for a few years. It was nice, good experience. Probably didn't have any business running it, but uh, I enjoyed it, learned quite a bit. And when I was through with that, I went to my old contacts that I had done deals with on the buy and the sell side and said, hey, why don't we buy a group of uh, portfolio companies? We started raising capital to do that. While we were raising capital, a friend of mine called and said, hey, I've heard one of my one of my clients is interested in selling this business. It's a company called Foot Solutions. Are you interested? Uh, and I asked him a few questions. First, said no, I'm not. It's not big enough. Uh, but then I slept on it and thought I'm going to go talk to this guy, see if there's a, a way to really scale it. So that's what we did. Three and a half years ago, we bought the business a week before the first COVID death. Imagine owning a company, a foot wellness retailer, brick and mortar uh, that serves primarily an older population. Uh, we did that right before COVID hit. Spent the first year rebranding, doing quite a bit of things to to be able to scale it. We really added the infrastructure and. We've grown it uh, 12x, I'm proud to say, over those three and a half years since we've owned it. And uh, we're, we're ready to hit the next level. Wow. And how many locations do you have globally? We have about 80 locations globally. Okay. Wow. So this is a, this is a big business. So you acquired this business 12x increase. That is insane. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, we're going to find out some of your secret sauce to do that. That's, that's, that's hard to do. It's possible. But you really got to be a, a strong tactician like John to be able to pull off a 12x growth in three years. So phenomenal work, brother. Have you grown your company through like just organic growth or did you did you do any inorganic acquisitions? Maybe walk me through a little bit of that on the growth side. Yeah. So that 12X is on the franchisor side. So the company that we bought, the franchisor, and we decided uh, when we bought it that we really weren't in a position to support franchisees and franchisee growth. We felt like the business needed some scale and some foundational work in order to be able to do that. And of course, in order to build a foundation and hire a, a nice, strong staff that you can take to, you know, 100 million even. Uh, you need to get uh, you need to get some scale and some capital. So um, we started buying companies, bought several locations from owners that were retiring, 
Uh, and then we went down to Florida and bought a company called Happy Feet Plus, which added uh, added 11 doors to our company. And it was then we made them all corporate stores as well. And then we bought some technology, licensed some technology from Europe. I uh, bought a company called Noeen USA. It was actually a, a company that had been pitched on Shark Tank. And the guy who had pitched it, uh, the guy who owned it, it's a material science business, if you want to look it up on Shark Tank. Uh, but he became part of our business with that acquisition. And so we've we've really done it through add-on acquisitions. It would probably be hard to get that size over that uh, amount of time without it. So I want our listeners to know that what John has done, um, as simple as this is for folks like John, uh, this is obvious for him, this is what he does. But the reality is when you're in a startup and that could be a fund or a fund investing in startups, doesn't matter. We all like growth. And to achieve that growth, what he's saying is you can buy that growth. So you can do organic growth and have new product lines and better marketing and you can do all that stuff. And, And yes, that is for sure a discipline you need to do. However, if you try to rapidly scale and grow, Maybe you think like John does, like a pro, and say, well, I can try to build a competitor. But sometimes you just say, or I just buy them. And you can start gobbling up. So it's, sometimes it's called a roll-up strategy that John's doing, where you kind of roll up a bunch of fragmented things in the industry. And then there were some strategic acquisitions you mentioned with technology. So there's a lot of things that John has done to build his company to grow that fast. But namely, you can have rapid growth by acquiring company. So either you do it. And if you don't know how to do it, you can hire investment banks or bring on partners that do. So acquiring companies through growth, sometimes we call that inorganic growth. And that is a powerful way to grow your business. So now sounds like you've built the foundation and you're ready to go for even more growth. So that being said, um, now that we know kind of how you got into this industry and what you're up to now, I'm wondering if we can let's spend some time talking about some of those cheat codes that you've been able to produce throughout your career. So if you have like two or three things that you found to be the most helpful. So if you could teach someone a masterclass on doing what you do, what would be some of the best advice you would give them? I guess the first thing that I would say is that being successful in business, and I don't want to act like I'm a guru, but to be successful in business, it's really a a series of good decisions. And in order to make good decisions, you have to focus yourself on wisdom and character. The nice thing about wisdom is it can be gathered really through osmosis, which is kind of interesting. It's the one thing that we can kind of just surround ourselves with and become more wise. So if you're around wise people, if you read wise books, if you go a little deeper in the things that you listen to, um, you can add wisdom. And so if you focus on wisdom and character, um, you become the things that the books are trying to tell you to be. So it's kind of interesting. You, A lot of people have read How to Win Friends and Influence People, you know, and I always think man, that's sort of the backwards way to do it. Like, Telling you to be sincere or telling you to, to listen is sort of like telling you to be a good person. And so I always thought, well, you know, why, don't, why don't we just focus on being a good person? Why don't we do things uh, that are good for our souls? Uh, why don't we think about others before we think about ourselves? Why don't we try to be more spiritual uh, and build that sort of naturally? It's like the, the people who say to, in order to connect with someone, you need to be vulnerable. Mm. You've heard that? Yeah. And that is true. You do. You need to be vulnerable and you need to be sincere. but you, those things can't really be faked. In fact, it's a real turnoff uh, if they are faked, you know, if, if you can read right through someone. So why not just focus on actually being a vulnerable person and someone who will admit mistakes, you know, and someone who is kind and thoughtful and empathetic. Those kind of things can, you know, really rub off and be successful and really win-win, a win for your soul and a win for the people that are, that are around you. So that's brilliant. You know, so what John's talking about, uh, sometimes, you know, I've, uh, those who have been around me long enough would know that I've been known to say that paperwork is more important than paperwork. Both are important. When it comes down to it, if you don't know people, you don't know business. And what John's talking about is that people element. And he's talking about specifically yourself as the driving engine of whatever business that you're in and that you're driving. It's important to get yourself 
in the right place. Typically things move from the inside out. And so if you're launching a business and doing these things, what John's saying is your character matters, your wisdom matters, not your technical understanding, although that we would say that that's in there, probably top five. It's wisdom and it's character. And from that, John's saying is he's been able to see massive growth. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, you start with the, you start with the wisdom. I remember getting out of college and feeling like I didn't know anything. Hmm. Um, and thinking, what what am I going to do with my life? This is, uh, I feel sort of out of place. And everybody talks about the, uh, the imposter syndrome. So I was I, I was thinking, man, I've sort of been faking it until I make it for a long time. Why don't I get some uh, information? So I started reading through National Review's top 100 nonfiction books. It was great. I loved it. I, I started to read things that I really enjoyed. I, I felt like I got a decent handle on on at least basic economics. In fact, one of the books in that list is Basic Economics. I'm a soul book. But then I sort of told myself, look, I'm committed. I can only read a certain amount of books over time. I'm committed to only reading nonfiction. I was like, I'm just going to read nonfiction. I'm going to go through uh, all the all the management textbooks I can find. I'm going to go through all the history books I can find. You know, it, it, it was a real switch. I think I sort of became a, a robot in some sense, like, oh, I know the answer to this kind of situation because I've, I've got a lot of book knowledge. And that doesn't really do a whole lot with people. It doesn't do a whole lot with building a team. Uh, you probably ought to focus a little bit more on human nature at the point that you're managing people. Um, the, the Russian authors do a great job with human nature. So I gave up on that and sort of realized my folly and started to pay attention more to, to, to the softer skills and developing, kind of naturally, inwardly developing uh, so that outwardly it would show at least uh, not just in success in business, but but life, you try to do your best. Yeah, I love that. And that, my friends, is wisdom right there. So I appreciate that. As he's talking about building this character, you can see there's some wisdom behind it. So I'd say, John, you, you've done a very good job at drinking your own Kool-Aid and, and building your own character and your wisdom. And, and that's where it's done. Yeah, I'm not a guru. I'm not a guru. I have plenty of mistakes and, and do a lot of unwise things. I'm sure everybody around me would tell you that. Yeah. And as I like to say, some of the worst decisions make for the best stories. And boy, do I got stories. So <laughs> eventually those stories, uh, hopefully, if you handle them right, they turn into a little wisdom to say, you know, what? that was pretty dumb. That's funny. My but it made a very good partner, story. Yeah. My business partner, uh, he's always saying you're either winning or you're learning. He was mm -hmm. 10 years in the NFL and. I guess that was the way they always talked about it when they lost. And when COVID happened right after we bought Foot Solutions, you know, our, our running joke was, man, we are learning a lot. We're really learning. <laughs> We're really learning a lot. I love this lack of this huge revenue drop or whatever. I don't know. But uh, oh, yeah. enormous revenue drop. It yeah. was almost a trickle of revenue. Good times. That was some fun learning. Yeah, it was right. a lot of good learning. That's awesome. Learning. We learn and we win, um, but never lose. So uh, I love that. That's, I believe, from Nelson Mandela. So fixing your character. Now, if I could put my own experience on that, friends, what I've been able to determine is a lot of investors, investments. So if you're raising capital or you're doing business or you're a CEO or any position where you need to have influence, there's different levels to the type of leadership. And I'll share a very personal story that I've never shared on the show. So back when I was an executive, we had these HR consultants come in. And there were three executives in this company, CEO, COO, and myself as a CFO. And they came in to do some HR consulting. And this will go into John's point. And so when it was my turn, um, they interviewed everybody and they left the executives in the end. And they said, Ryan, we're really glad to meet you. And they were wonderful. There's just two of them. And they said, um, we've heard so much good things about you. Everybody raves about you. They called you the internal Tony Robbins or what, I don't know, whatever that means. And, and I thought, Gee, why did they tell me that? Like, that's nice to hear. And I remember we were talking, they were just asking me questions and understanding. And one partner leaned over to the other and said, oh, he's definitely a level five leader. And I had no idea what that meant. 
right? We just all, just like anybody, we just, we get a job and we try to do our best. We buy a company, we try to do our best, whatever that might be. So I went to his office after and he said, and I was like, what does that mean? What is level five? I, I take my leadership very serious. I deeply care about the people in my charge and I really want to do my best. And he said, a level five leader are the kind of people who have their character in place that just by who they are, people naturally just want to be around them and follow them and listen to them and just be close in their orbit next to that nice bonfire. I thought, wow, that's how I'm seen. That is wonderful. Now I'm not beating on my chest, but what I'm telling you is there's different kinds of leaders. And as if you want to be a good leader, even if you just want to be a great speaker, a lot of that starts from the inside out. A lot of that excellence that John's talking about, and that I'm talking about. A lot of people who made it spent many years being nobody that you've never heard of, just building their character and building their wisdom over and over and over until they get to the point that they've refined themselves on purpose and they become a leader that people want to follow. They become somebody that they want to be around. Now imagine if you're raising capital, starting a business and investors and deal makers just want to do business with you because they can trust you. They like being around you because of the wisdom and the character that you share. So I don't want you to take John's wisdom lightly here. This is very, very powerful. We're not talking about calculus. We could get into that, but it's calculus. So I'd put, <laughs> that'd be, that'd be a nighttime I'll podcast. But that, like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but what we're talking about is the importance of that. And I did not want to gloss over this onto your next point, John, but this point is so critical on getting money and deals and opportunities and all of these people in leadership and getting your troops to to do something they never thought they could. It all became apparent when your character and your wisdom started to lead the way. And that is how you're known. Sometimes we call that your reputation. So thank you for that. That is powerful wisdom. And as you could tell, I, I kind of geeked out and went on a tangent here, but this is so critical. I did not want to miss this, is that personal development is leadership development. Success is an inside job. So what yeah. else have you found, uh, John, through through all your vast experience? I mean, we talked about, you know, becoming a, a leader, a, you know, a virtuous leader, but what else have you found as far as leadership or anything else? Something that's really been on my mind lately is the idea of uh, wakefulness. You, you've heard of that term, you know, really being living in the moment. A lot of people call it living in the moment. I read like a little small book that it was talking about being mindful and present and all that. And I thought, man, I, I am doing a horrible job at that, doing a horrible job at that. And so I started thinking, well, why am I doing a horrible job at that? And it was because executives are required if you don't want to fall on your face, you're required to think always into the future. What's next? We talk about things like game theory and <clears throat> being leaders in technology and advancement and advance and advance and advance. Um, and so that's where my brain's at all day long. And then I'm supposed to walk in the house at 6 p.m. And my four kids are supposed to run up to me and I'm and then I'm, I'm turning that off somehow, you know. Uh, so I think the first step really and I'm not great at this still, but I think the first step is really to recognize that it's a problem. Um, if you're going to be an executive and check yourself why you want to be an executive, right? Why do you, you know, is it for the the money and fame? Like maybe think twice about that for a second. Think maybe it's to take care of somebody else. Something's bigger than me and more important than me. But when you walk in, I, I've had to do some things like take some pretty practical steps, like just putting your phone away when you get home, uh, training your staff. I used to have people texting me at you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the evening, like person never paid us. We need to call them in the morning, you know, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, and I would respond to it, you know? And so I was training them to, yeah, John's available 24 uh, seven. And I always thought that was like a, that was part of like being successful is like always working, but that'll, that'll tear you down. Ultimately you'll burn out, uh, which isn't important. Wow. That's phenomenal. So it sounds like from what you're saying, if I can put it in my own words, it's just, it's important to set boundaries when you're climbing up and you're having now people that are relying on you. That's fine. And that's the reality of it. But at the end of the day, it's important to master the art of not only looking down the road as an executive to see the future, but also being present in the moment and being able to bounce between both sides of that fence are, I think what I'm hearing 
is that is critical in your success to grow and lead companies is to set boundaries and master the art of both being able to look down the road in the future when it's required, but then also put your phone away, set some boundaries and be present in that moment. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it. I mean, that's exactly right. That the the hard part, you just have to be purposeful about it because if you're not, you will get hung up. And and all of the folks that listen to your show, uh, I'm sure the profile is, you know, high performing, you know, high efficient, hardworking people. Um, and all that is great. Do that all day long. But when you are home and you're with your family, you got to stop it. Be with you got to stop it. You got yeah. it. I agree. So learning how, right, again, back to that wisdom and character development, part of that leadership development is learning when to be present and then when to be focused on the future. And notice, might I add, John never said, look back. He said, you're either, <laughs> you're either here right now or you're looking forward, but we never look back You move this thing forward. So like a true executive, I love it. What are some success factors that you found in m and I'm, I'm sure... I'm sure you got a, a few of those up your sleeve. If there's something that I've gotten pretty proficient at, it's it's lower middle market company valuation and transactions, uh, you know, actually getting deals done and executing. And I think um, probably folks who try to who come from the middle market and up, they probably when they try to dip back, to, try to dip down into the sort of 10 to 50 million dollar transaction, um, they probably lose uh, touch as to what's that all that's all about. Right. Um you know, when you're doing your high profile CFO role and when you're bringing in investment bankers and they're running sophisticated models and uh, and using tried and true negotiating techniques um, and determining value based on, you know, whatever the model spits out and, and the risk profile and, and that sort of thing, um, you really can lose touch with uh, what's going on. Because I think the, the real value, I think the real value in uh, private equity transactions, I think the only place it really lives now is in the lower middle market. You can buy I mean, there's a lot of private equity companies trading companies back and forth and, and you know, paying up and trading up and, and going into auctions. And that's all well and good. But for folks who are trying to really do some like some outsized things, which I think a lot of your audience is, um, I would say think of, think of that company that's doing, you know, a million and a half in earning, you know, in EBITDA. You know, go to that company that's doing a million in EBITDA uh, because the way you value, com- value a company like that uh, is different. It's not, it's not what you think. It's not with cash flow models. I mean, I suppose you could do it. Uh, but the way you evaluate, evaluate a company and the way you place a value on that company is really about what it can be, number one. And number two, odds are you've got uh, something you can add to that business that can make it a lot better. You know, what we call low-hanging fruit. Of course, everybody knows that term, right? If you go look at a company and you go, oh, man, they are terrible at X and I am great at X, right? Well, then that is a no-brainer type transaction. And so in your mind, the value can can go up uh, for that reason. Um, the other thing I'd say is that when you're trying to buy a company of that size, I used to do this this talk around town uh, in, in a couple of cities called how to buy how to buy your competitor. And one of the things it was the point we were always trying to make is like this is really an art. It's not a science when you're when you're talking about buying from a private individual who started this company. This is this is their baby. As much, I mean, everybody says that, but that's true. I mean, it's something that they deeply deeply care about, and they want to see their legacy grow. They want to know they're handing it off in the right hands, and so developing a, a strong relationship with the owner and building a trusting relationship with the owner can go a long way towards structuring the deal the right way um, and in a favorable way towards towards getting a value that makes sense um, and incorporates a lot of the risk in buying something that's a little bit smaller than you than you normally would. And of course, the way you do that, again, is not, you know, by reading a book, how to cultivate trust <laughs> with somebody. You, you, you build yourself internally so that you are somebody that people uh, could trust and that uh, and that you are sincere when you're interacting with them. Part of that is like is admitting mistakes. Part of that is going in there with with a more humble attitude. Uh, but those things all come naturally if you if you work on it. Uh, and like you say, work on it, work on it inwardly. 
Wow, I love that. So where do, let's say, um, knowing what opportunity costs are, where how does that come into play in some of your analysis? Um, maybe you can walk us through a little bit of, say, opportunity costs, working with uh, the founder on the other side of this deal. How, how does all of that action work? Stay with us. We'll be right back. AI is changing the game of business. Will you be on the winning team? I'm Jordan Wilson, the host of the Everyday AI Podcast, and your coach to help you learn the X's and O's of AI. Artificial intelligence isn't just a new player in the game, it's a new sport altogether. So if you don't quickly put AI into play, your competitors will run up the score. I've spent my whole life building winning teams, from coaching basketball to working with big players like Nike and Jordan Brand. My next move, helping you win with Everyday AI. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or on everydayaipodcast.com. Let's tap into AI together and put points on the board. Yeah, so uh, great question. So I think it's important, especially if you're trying to do private uh, private equity and you're not doing public securities or you're, you're, you're dabbling, you're sort of trying to move into, you know, real hard assets, real companies that you can get involved in. Uh, make sure you're, you've got other options, <laughs> you know, so that when you're evaluating it, your your opportunity cost comes in into play. Like, I, I know that I can loan money at 12%. I know that, you know. So if I am talking to a, a small business that I would love to invest in and love to get my group together and go and do it, if I'm not certain it's going to do much better than 12%, well, then let's just leave that Let's just leave that one alone and go do something else. I think sometimes the shiny thing and the owning the company can make, you know, can make you make bad decisions. And at the same time, if you know what you can do with your money otherwise, if you know what your opportunity costs are, you can be very firm and, and direct about what you're willing to pay, you know, and you don't have to move from that. Uh, it, can be, it can be a very uh, unemotional type uh, transaction. On the opposite side, on the seller side. If you know what their options are, um, it also can help inform the valuation des- decision. Unfortunately, for people who are sort of under the two million EBITDA number, they don't have a lot of options typically. Uh, and especially, and if you're a business owner and you're in that category, hire a good banker. Do not go cheap on the you know the broker that you just have you know because because you can get really you can really get messed up on evaluation um, from doing that. Um, so in any case, knowing what your other options are, staying disciplined and making investments based in value and companies based on that uh, can really help you you know, have an outsized return. Man, thank you for that. And so know what your options are. But uh, I think what John is also saying is also know what their options are. And that uh, I'm assuming that'll help you to kind of navigate on price and, and just the sale and all that. But selling is more than just are you my best option? It is part of that. But there's also emotions involved. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk about, especially f- like original founders, that's like your kids. You've raised this thing to maturity and handing them off to on marriage, right? To the, the next suitor. Kind of a tough thing. And there's emotions involved, like anything with money. What's your experience and what have you found as far as the, the emotional context of when you're across the table, you're trying to close a deal or not? How do the emotions play into acquiring companies? Uh, well, the first thing is it does on the seller side and the buyer side. The buyer can get really jazzed and emotional and overpay, uh, and the seller can become tied up into selling to a particular party um, and and sell underneath the actual value. However, I don't necessarily think that's bad um, from from a seller's perspective. You are selling something that you built. You want to feel like it's going to last. You want to feel like your employees are going to be taken care of. The brand's going to be taken care of and and uh, not discarded. There's nothing wrong with selling to somebody that you really like and you want to you want to take. You want them to take care of it. I mean, that's a, a free exchange in a free market. And if you feel good about the buyer, go ahead and do it. I mean, I'm, I think uh, I, I'm certain that if uh, if I was faced with a decision, you know, and the price was a little bit different and and I thought one guy was a big jerk and the other guy was a good, solid person, I'd probably go 
even if the good solid person was a little bit lower, I'd probably go with them. Wow. So how you feel folks is and how they feel about the deal can determine how much you pay, or it could determine whether you even get the deal or not. So emotions are really critical. That's why I always say when you're pitching or doing a deal, you want to sell the sizzle, not the steak. Meaning you gotta, you gotta be exciting. And the thing, John is so good. And like all professionals, they just whip through these things. There were so many nuggets in what he just said. And the one I really want to highlight though, is reassuring the founder that their staff and their brand is going to be okay. Remember, the founder may have a lot of strong feelings and really care for these people that have followed him and or her to build this company. And so part of that deal or those discussions, I think if I'm picking up what you're laying down, John, is also to ensure that the founder knows that you see that this is a business of people and you appreciate that. And not just going over numbers, you do need to, you do need to sell the stake a little bit, but the sizzle is all about the emotional undertones of the entire deal. Do I like you? Do I trust you? Do I feel like I know who you are? Are you a good person? Do I feel like you're going to gut my company? Are you going to care for people like I care for my people? All of those things do run through a founder's mind. If you're the acquirer and you're buying a company off someone selling and it's their company that they've literally built with their bare hands, make sure, to John's point, that you cover the emotional context of the deal. Is that a fair statement, John? Yeah, it is. And be totally honest about it. I mean, uh, we bought a company recently and the founder, um, she, she said, I want you to guarantee in the agreement that you're not going to change the brand. Hmm. Not going to change the name. And I said, I might change the name. <laughs> you know, we're going to make decisions based on what's best for this company. And I think that's what you would want for the people that are working in this company. But I can tell you for certain, I don't know whether I'm going to change it. And as a matter of fact, I didn't. Matter of fact, I didn't. Uh, but I was honest enough to say we might, you know, and the same thing with employees. You'll get sellers who will say, you have to guarantee me that you're not going to fire, fire Charles. And you, you, you'd say, I'm not, I can't, you're selling the business to me. You know, I'm not going to do that but I can guarantee you that I'll give Charles a fair shake. I want to see Charles win. And uh, if he doesn't work out, he doesn't work out, but I'm going to give him a, a fair shake. So these are funny, com- not funny conversations, but they're a lot different. The lower middle market is a lot different than the you know auctioned company by the big investment bank. Like it's show me the money and that's basically it. Wow. You know, when back in my uh, former days uh, as an executive, we used to have a saying just in my leadership and I still have it now is just like no golden calves or sacred cows or anything like that. Just these, these people that are untouchable, they can, and then they can do whatever they want. And unfortunately what that does is it's in, from my experience and yours may be different, but what I've found is when there's these people who are just really in with the boss and they can do no wrong, even though they are, and everyone learns they're like, you can't say anything. You can't say that this person's not doing their job or they're taking five hour lunch breaks and what whatever it is. And what that does is it shows that you get rewarded for being in with the boss politics, right? And if and those of us who've worked in large corporations, usually that's not a good thing. And I, I can tell you some stories. Um, but what's funny is the boss usually knows they should get fired. But you know what else is, especially if you go in and buy a company or you take a, over a company and you're, you start running or you take over a division or something like that. The minute that you fire somebody that everybody knows is just a hanger on, you know, just a guy sucking the company dry and not working hard the rest of the employees will be drawn to you quickly. They will see that as real leadership. And you you can make a real statement by taking somebody out of the business that doesn't belong there. And especially if everybody knows they don't belong there. Yeah. Uh, and that will add to your, is your first uh, point of uh, wisdom and character and leadership development that further strengthens that you're like, look, this is a business. I think Netflix said, we're, we're not a family, we're a team and everyone needs to run their place, <laughs> right? We're not a family where people are, you know, lovey and protected. You don't leave family. You can't fire family. Even maybe sometimes some of uh, the people right. listening might want to, but, but you've, been in, you've been listening to me on other podcasts. Perhaps. I get so much pushback from some of the people on, in the company. I love that yeah. they want to call it a family. But I say, well, your family's really good and my family's really good, but not everybody's family's really good. In fact, mm. 
sometimes family members have to be ushered out the door, you know, right. so let's call it a team. Let's call it a team. That, that seems more appropriate, but anyway, yep. I like that people want to call it a family, but they only mean that in a good sense. And not exactly. Yeah. Sense. It's well intended for sure. But yeah. if you're the leader, which you are, and I am of my companies, and it's very clear under your leadership and your stewardship is saying, it's not a family. We're, we're not, we're not related, but we all have jobs to do to achieve a specific vision. And you just think of like a certain team and there's one person throwing great, they're throwing the ball perfect, landing in the pocket and the other person's just not there. And you're like, dude, I'm doing my job, but we're both failing. Why? Because you're not doing your part. And so when people understand that their leader sees it as a team and everyone runs the plays or whatever it might be, then I think it adds to better culture where people are able to work and say, look, we're, we're here to do a job. We're not a family. Like if you step out of line, there's a process for that and we'll bring you back in as a team or we'll give you training or whatever that is, just like a team. But if it's a family, typically families let a lot of things go. And yeah, okay. Arguably, you do need to do that. At the end of the day, make sure that your leadership doesn't inadvertently create politics or this sacred calf or whatever we want to call it. Just make sure that everybody knows that if you do your job, you're going to love it here. If you don't, probably not the place for you. That's that's just leadership. And that is a, a good culture of excellence, in my opinion. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree totally. Um, I would rather be on a team than in a family uh, from a business perspective because you're, you're measured by your performance. That's right. Teams are expected to perform. Families are. So as we wrap things up, any last minute comments, anything at all that you would uh, like to share? I don't think so. Um, I, I would say that a lot of the a lot of the pitfalls and your listeners are growing businesses and they're growing them fast. I would say a lot of the pitfalls come from forgetting your roots, forgetting who you are, getting too proud of yourself. And I, and I know I'm talking, giving a lot of advice and I always feel a little bit uncomfortable doing that thinking, well, I'm coming off like I think I know it all. I don't. But I would say, like, as you get bigger, check yourself, check your motivations as you grow. Think about why you're doing it. If you're pursuing money for money's sake, uh, you're really going to lose on the character side of it. If you're listening to these kind of shows, if you're if you're pursuing knowledge just for knowledge sake, um, you're going to lose on the wisdom side. So I would just say try to try to approach it best you can in in as humble uh, a persona as you can be. And that doesn't mean don't be proud of what you've accomplished. Um, but try to try to hold on to your center of gravity. You know, when you're when you're running that billion dollar fund, you've got all those assets under management, everybody looking up to you, calling you the guru and, and wanting to be next to you. Don't lose sight uh, of your grounding and your soul, because if you lose that, it won't be worth it. Man, that's wonderful. So thank you for that. And, and I couldn't agree more. So just to summarize everything that John and I talked about, work on your leadership from character and wisdom, master the art of being present while also focusing on the future. And finally, go into deals, knowing what your options are and the emotions are on both sides of the tail. You do these things and you too will be well on your way in your pursuit of making billions. Wow, what a show. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Now, if you haven't done so already, be sure to leave a comment and review on new ideas and guests you want me to bring on for future episodes. Plus, why don't you head over to YouTube and see extra takes while you get to know our guests even better. And make sure to come back for our next episode where we dive even deeper into the people, the process, and the perspectives of both investors and founders. Until then, my friends, stay hungry, focus on your goals, and keep grinding towards your dream of making billions. <laughs>